0: We read of that anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16. And it was then that, that uh, the scripture says that the spirit of the Lord came upon David. And, and it, it transformed his life and it set him on a pathway that, um, that no one could uh, get in the way of. It was God's plan, and God worked it out in His life. Now, in Second Samuel, we we start uh, the the book of Second Samuel basically after Saul, King Saul's death. We know that that uh, David uh, was in a struggle with King Saul, right, for a long time. So much so that King Saul was. Um, after David. He was seeking to kill David. and David refused, even though he had opportunity, David refused to take the life of Saul. And the reason for that is because David himself understood the anointing of God and that Saul had been anointed of the Lord to to be the king, even though he himself had been raised up prior to that time to take Saul's place, he, he respected that authority. He respected the, the, um, the, the authority of the Lord that, that God had given to Saul. So we discover at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his son Jonathan are killed in battle. David mourns over Saul and Jonathan. And and it's it's interesting because a lot of a lot of um, David's compatriots um, were probably thinking, dude, why are you mourning over this? This is finally freedom for you. You've been chased around the country for years now uh, by this maniac, and rejoice in the fact that that's over. But David mourned, and he mourned Saul. Yes, Jonathan was his best friend. He certainly mourned Jonathan's death, but he also mourned Saul's death because he understood that that, that in itself was a great grief among the people of Israel. Now, um, throughout then uh, the beginning of second Samuel, we see that David was made king of Judah. Uh, now, Judah is the southern kingdom. We we have uh, at this point, up till this point, there was not a divided kingdom. And Saul, when Saul died, uh, David David was made king basically by Joab, who is who was his uh, general, if you will. They went to Hebron, which is is uh, there in in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel. And, and uh, he was made king of Judah. But he was not made king of the northern uh, tribal areas. The, the tribal areas known as Israel. Um, and, and there is this back and forth and finally um, finally, uh, in that those first few chapters we see that, that Abner who was uh, the general of Israel um, comes and meets with David and David is, is uh, uh, lets him go in peace. And the only reason that happens is because David's general, Joab, is out on a raid. When Joab comes back, he says to David, what in the world are you doing? And he pursues he, he pursues Abner but in that pursuit even Joab himself is convinced by Abner to stop chasing him because they are brothers they are not blood brothers as in um, as in of the same mother but they are brothers in in their their faith family of Israel and so um, that that happens. And then we get to chapter six through eight and it's, it's the, the rise of David's influence, his victories over the Philistines, the Edomites, the Arameans, which is also the Syrians and, um, and Ammonites. And that, that happens on the heels of David ascending to the throne when Saul's Son Ishbosheth passes away. He dies. He's killed actually, and David even mourns his death. And and um, even as he struck down the young man that reported uh, Saul's death to him previously, um, he struck down the young man who killed Ishbosheth, as as having struck down um, or at because. He viewed them as having struck down um, God's man. Now, David ascends the throne and and is finally the king of all of Israel. And chapter six through eight, we see great victories. Um, and uh, chapter nine, we see his his uh, kindness to David. Or excuse me, Jonathan's son, Meshit, uh, Mephib- Mephibosheth. Say that really fast, three times, Mephibosheth. Um, and, uh, and then in, in chapter uh, 10, we see um, David uh, being confronted with a, a confederation of the Ammonites and the Arameans or the Syrians. They come after David, it's interesting, in, in chapter 9, the king of Ammon dies, and David sends, sends his condolences to, to his family. And, and his, uh, his son, the son of the king of Am- uh, the, the Ammonites, who had just recently ascended the throne, gets suspicious. What's going on? Why is David sending his condolences? And they treat David's messengers terribly, um, offending them greatly. And then they they join forces with the uh, the Arameans, and they come against David. David gets ready to to um, he gets his armies ready to defend uh, their territory, and in the process, they completely annihilate the two armies that are are coming against them and that's where we pick up with second samuel chapter 11 and that's where I'd like for us to read together chapter 11 it's here that we get the context the reason for all this storytelling is to get this context Verse 1 of chapter 11, then it happened in the spring at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the sons of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David stayed at Jerusalem. You see, what they were doing is is, uh, they had destroyed the army, but they... they pursued and set a siege on the city of Rabbah. Now, what does besiege mean? Do you know what a siege is? It's, it's when an army comes against a city and they basically starve them out. They set a siege against the city in, in a manner in which nothing goes in and nothing comes out. And they end up starving, starving the people. Until there is victory. Um, that's what's going on here with Rama. Now, now it's interesting that we will see later that, uh, that this siege will come to an end. And it's noted specifically uh, later at the end of, uh, in chapter 12. Now it's in this moment that we see David staying at home. He's not going out with the army. And it's a curious thing because David typically went out with the army. He was a warrior. He was a man of war. And and it's curious that he decides to stay in Jerusalem. Well, we read here in chapter 11, 11 that while David is staying there in Jerusalem, taking his ease, if you will, He's on his rooftop one night and he happens to see a woman bathing next door on a rooftop. And we know that that woman's name is Bathsheba. She is a woman who is married to a soldier who is involved in the siege against Rama. And he sees this woman and he sends for her. And they end, up, they end up sleeping together and lo and behold, she becomes pregnant. Surprise, surprise. This is the king. This is the king who has been anointed by the Lord. And he sees this woman and enters into sin with her. She comes to him at some time later and says, David, you need to know that I'm pregnant with your child. So what does David do? Well, like many politicians, he starts to cover up, doesn't he? He starts to cover up things and he, he decides the way he's going to do that is he's going to send for Uriah. Uh, Bathsheba's husband. And Uriah comes back from the front, from the siege. And, and Uriah is an upright man. So much so that he t- he, uh, David says, says to him, how are, things at the, how are things at the siege? How are things going? Want to know? I, I, you're my neighbor? I just want to find out how things are going. Oh, thanks for telling, cluing me in on how it is. Hey, while you're here, just go home and be uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor and and be with your wife. Enjoy the comfort of, comforts of home while you're here. Uriah is an upright man, however, and what he does is he says, "No, I am not going to do that." Because my brothers-in-arms are living in tents out in the middle of the desert. Am I going to enjoy the comforts of my home and lie with my wife? Absolutely not. Because I'm loyal. I'm a brother-in-arms. I I think any of you in this room, a veteran, having served in the military? Yeah, some of you. You kind of know what that's about, right? There's a code that goes along with with serving and suffering together and so uriah is an upright man and he says no i'm not going to do that so he he ends up sleeping outside david finds out about this and thinking oh no my plan is not going to work what am i going to do he sends uriah back And sends a note with him. Get this. He sends a note with Uriah for Uriah's commander. Guess what the note says? The note says, put Uriah in the front, on the front lines, and in the heat of battle, tell your other men to retreat from him. So that Uriah will be surely killed in the heat of battle. This cover-up has gone from deception to murder. That's where David has gone to cover up his sin. Now, that's chapter 11. What we hear in chapter 12 is the, uh, the prophet Nathan. The prophet Nathan just happens to be a man of God in whom David puts a great deal of trust because he knows Nathan tells the truth. He tells it like it is. So Nathan comes and says, um, he enters in and speaks to David. Let's read together chapter 12 of 2 Samuel. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David and he came to him and said, there There were two men in the city, one rich and one the other poor. The rich man had a great many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he bought and nourished and it grew and grew up together with him and his children's and it would eat of his bread and drink of his cup and lie in his bosom like it was a daughter to him. Do any of you have dogs that do that? You feed them by by your own hand and and they're part of the family. That's who this ewe lamb is. Now a traveler came, verse 4, traveler came to the rich man and he was unwilling to take from his own flock or his own herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Rather, he took the poor man's ewe lamb, his precious only lamb. Then David's anger burned greatly against this man, the rich man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, surely the man who has done this deserves to die. And he must make restitution for the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and had no compassion. And Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord of Israel, it is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care. And I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you displeased the word of the Lord or despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion. And you shall lie with your wives in and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan. I have sinned against the Lord. And that's where Psalm 51 comes in. It's important to understand that Nathan responded with the word of the Lord as well. The rest of verse 13 is, and Nathan said to David, the Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because this deed you have been given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So, Psalm 51 is birthed out of this tragedy. So, let's look at Psalm 51. Psalm 51, verse 1. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. It's interesting that David is confronted with the truth in a manner that he cannot escape from. And his his retreat is into the grace of God. His retreat is not to spin another story or to justify his retreat is into the grace of God. And in so doing, he counts upon the character of God. Look at with me. Look at it with me. There are three words that describe the character of God in these two verses. Number one, be gracious. God is gracious, and that word means to stoop in kindness. To to stoop, to be made inferior in kindness. The word loving kindness is also there, according to your loving kindness. Loving kindness is part of the character of God. The word is chesed. Andy spoke of that earlier tonight, the beginning of the worship set. And it is that covenant love. It is the loving kindness of God that is built upon his promise. And his promise emanates from his faithfulness. It's part of who he is. The third word is compassion. According to the greatness of your compassion. And the, the, the word greatness there means the abundance of your compassion and compassion is this word. It's the word of mother love. It's the word that uh, 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 it, it speaks of the care that a pregnant mother gives her unborn child. It's a beautiful picture of cherishing, tenderly loving, This is the character of God that David runs to. Now he asks this of the Lord, three actions, three things because of your character, God, I ask you these three three things and what we see here is grace and actions. He says blot out my transgressions. Blot them out. That That word blot out means to rub or to erase. Would you keep your thumb here and turn over to the right to Isaiah 43 with me. Isaiah 43. It's not too far. Isaiah 43 verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sin. That word, wipes out, is that same word. It means to erase. Now, God is, God is all-knowing. How is it that he can say, I will not remember your sins? That's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, right? How is that? In God's amazing, infinite love, even in his sovereignty, he can choose to put away those things that he chooses to. And the thing that he chooses to put away here is our sin. Now how does he do that? Because he's also a just God, right? Well we know that in Jesus Jesus himself pays for our sin by his own life. The payment of sin, the atonement of sin is happens through the shedding of blood. And in the shedding of blood, sin is canceled out. We have this beautiful picture of the Last Supper. And there Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood shed for the remission of. That word remission means canceling out, the erasing of your sin. So God meets his demand for justice in Jesus. Now, keep your hand here in, at, at also at Psalm 43 because we're going to come back to it, okay? But go back. You've, you've held your thumb at Psalm 51. Blot out my transgressions. What's the second word or second verb he asks of the Lord? Verse 2 wash me, right? Wash me thoroughly. It's, it's like to scrub. Launder me, Lord. <laughs> Launder me. Make me thoroughly clean. And the word thoroughly, again, means to increase. Make me increasingly clean. It's, it's a beautiful picture of an ongoing work. The third verb is, and cleanse me from my sin. That word cleanse means to be made bright, to be made pure, to make unadulterated. Now, we also see, we have seen three characters of God. We've seen, or three words that speak of the character of God, three verbs that that David asks of the Lord, do these things, Lord. And we also see three types of offenses. Look at it. He says, Blot out my transgression. My transgression is the first type. And that word transgression is really interesting. I usually think of it as a trespass. Oh, I stepped onto somebody's property. No, That word means revolt. It means rebellion. Blot out my rebellion. I'm amazed that this man would be so bold to come before God Almighty and ask him to erase his rebellion. We often look at rebels, those in rebellion, as being unforgivable because they have set their will to do harm. They've set their will to do that which is contrary to God's God's intention. And David is saying, God, because of your graciousness, because of your loving kindness, because of your compassion, erase my willful rebellion. Wow. And the next word, watch me thoroughly from my iniquity. That word iniquity means perversity. We have this word in our language, in our vernacular, pervert, right? And it's a word that is full of scorn, perversion, that which is unnatural, that which is twisted. David says, wash me thoroughly. Make me clean again because I've been twisted. I've been dirty and dank and perverted. And cleanse me from my sin. That word sin, um, I think many of us have heard the word sin likened unto missing the mark as if we've tried but we just didn't hit the target but this word here means even habitual offense the over and over and over doing of sin of offending God over and over and over again And David says, cleanse me, cleanse me, make me pure again from this habitual sin, this habitual offense. You see, sin, in all its putridness, cannot stand, cannot remain in view of the grace of God. The grace of God is deeper and wider and higher and longer. Richer, more intense than any sin. That's what David is counting on. And God's gift of grace is based on who he is. He cannot divorce himself from his character. So back to Psalm 43, or excuse me, Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression. For whose sake? For my own sake. You see, God's forgiveness, we tend to think of, oh, God, please forgive me for, because I need it. And yes, you do. But God's forgiveness is available to us also for his own sake. Because he wants a spotless bride. For my own sake. And I will not remember Your sin. Now, guess what the context of this psalm or this prophecy is? Look at the very beginning of Isaiah 43. Look at the first four verses with me. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob. It's interesting, O Jacob, who's he talking to? He's talking to all of Israel, but guess, he doesn't say, he doesn't say Israel, he says Jacob, guess what the the name Jacob means, it means deceiver, it means heel catcher, trickster, God knows us, doesn't he? But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Sheba in your place since you are are precious in my sight. Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. What did he do with Jesus? He did that very thing, did he not? And it's based on who he is. This isn't just what God does. It's not just his capability. It's He cannot be otherwise. This is who God is. So, back to Psalm 51. and We're going to race to the end, okay? For now, for I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are justified when you, when you speak and blameless when you judge. <laughs> My sin is ever before me. What does that sound like? It sounds like guilt, doesn't it? And why did you ever thought, why do you feel so guilty? Duh, it's because you are. (laughs) Right? We feel guilty because we are. And David knows his guilt. Against you and you only have I sinned. You see, all sin is against God. It's because he is the one who sets the standard. And any sin... Is against him. You are justified," says you. You are justified when you speak. That word uh, has a forensic sense to it. It's it's moral in its thought, and it's it's there that that makes right or defines what is right. You are right, in other words, God. You are right, period. Signed, sealed, delivered, end of discussion. You are right. And I have to say that's what it takes for us. That's what, that's what confession is all about. You see, confession is not just saying, God, I, I goofed up. It's saying, God, you are right. It's, it's, it's the confession of the truth. You are right. Verses 5 and 6. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity in my sin, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being, and the inner part, you will make me know wisdom. Um, When... When we read this at the top, you have to wonder what's he saying here. Was there is is the conceiving process sin? No, he's not talking about he's not talking about um, the idea of sexual intercourse and the result of a child being birthed. That's not sin. But what he is talking about is that we are all born with a sin nature. Paul in Romans 5 says, So then, as though one transgression resulted in, all, in, in condemnation to all men, even so, through one act of righteousness there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, even so, through the obedience of one the many will be made righteous. You see, that's why Jesus makes all the difference. We're born with a sinful nature. And Jesus makes us righteous. And only he can do that. Verse 6, God desires truth. And not just the, not just the outward uh, um, admission of it. The inner, in the innermost being. Truth to the core. That's what God is after. And I have this theory, and it's just a theory. This is Brad's theory, okay? You've heard the word anxiety. It's epidemic in our culture. Mm -hmm. Worrying about things and stuff. And just high anxiety. My theory is this. That anxiety springs from cognitive dissonance. That means I'm doing something that I know is not right. And it, I can't put my action and what I know to be right together in my head. There's dissonance there. Paul talks about that in Romans chapter 7, doesn't he? Doing what he doesn't want to do, not doing what he does want to do. That creates dissonance in our head. And so that creates our, our anxiety. Now, um, I would. we also know that depression is epidemic in our culture, isn't it? Depression... Again, this is Brad's theory. Depression springs from prolonged dissonance, cognitive dissonance, leading to the belief that what we do defines who we are. In other words, if I'm doing wrong, I begin to believe that I am wrong. And therefore, I'm depressed because I can't change myself. Again, that's just my weird theory. But the reality is, is that, that God desires purity. He desires truth in the core of who we are. So verse 7 Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness, and let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your, fa- hide your face from my sins, and blot out my iniquities. Um, this word, pu- this idea of being purified with hyssop, um, has its roots in... in, um, in uh, the uh, the the Levitical teaching of how one is to be purified from leprosy. I I I think it's instructive here, to say that that David understands that what he's involved with here is disease. Sin is a disease, and it's progressive, and it's eating him up. And the only way to be purified is indeed the Lord's way. And he reaches out and says, purify me with hyssop. It's interesting as well that hyssop was used to uh, spread the blood on the lentil of the door of the house when the angel of death came to take the firstborn. The blood of the covenant spread with hyssop Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Um, Isaiah chapter 1, this beautiful passage, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. That's God's promise. Make me hear joy and gladness. You see, purification leads to restoration the restoration of joy and gladness, broken bones. It's interesting that he says here, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. What? Yes, God is in the business of even breaking the bones if that's what it takes to get us to turn. And that's indeed what David experienced. He experienced the shattering of his life there before Nathan, God calling him out. Verse 10 Create in me a clean heart, O God and renew a steadfast spirit within me do not cast me away from your presence and don't take your holy spirit from me restore to me the joy of my salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit then then i will teach your transgression transgressors your way and sinners will be converted to you the word create here is the same word that is used in genesis chapter 1 And what do we know about that? It was out of nothingness that God created all that that is. And so what David is asking here is saying, make me brand new. Start over with me, God. Start over with me. Out of nothingness, make me brand new again. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. That word steadfast means to be upright. And it, mean, it actually means to be perpendicular. That, that imagery uh, speaks of what is perpendicular? It's a 90 degree angle, right? And if something like water comes forward to you, and that's level, right? And it's rushing towards you, that which is perpendicular stays perpendicular. It's steadfast in spite of the onslaught. It's firm. It's fixed. The word spirit here speaks of the human spirit. It means breath. It means life. A steadfast spirit means give me, Lord, life that will stand up against the onslaught. Verse 11, don't cast me away from your presence. David needs the presence of the Lord and he knows it. Um, We talked about how he was anointed. Is king in 1 Samuel 16, there Samuel anointed him with oil. And the scripture says that the spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. He knew that. He knew that. The question has to be asked, though, so in this context, does it lead us to wonder, does God, can God, will God take his spirit away from us? That's a significant question. If we look at the life of Saul, we know that um, that God there in 2 Samuel 16, the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. And an evil spirit terrorized him. So it is possible. And yet, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 1, In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. You see, it's his glory that's at stake. And his glory is not going to be diminished. His glory is attached to the fact that you have been sealed by his spirit. Again, in chapter four of Ephesians, um, Paul writes, let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he goes on, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. All of that is written there because we are prone to that. And it is written there as well, for us to be reminded that though we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, we do have the capability of grieving the Holy Spirit. Though he will not leave, we can grieve him. And it's important that we do the work not to allow that to happen in our lives. Verse 12, restore to me the joy of whose salvation? Your salvation. You see, we have to remember that salvation is God's. It's what He gives to us. It's not my salvation. It's God's salvation. Um, there in Rome, uh, excuse me, Revelation seven, we have. This this glorious scenes of multitudes coming, this great throng standing before the Lord, crying out, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Salvation is God's and it's his gift to us. Joy is also his gift to us. John chapter 16, Jesus says, you you have grief for now, but but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. Isn't that glorious? That's Jesus' very personal promise to us. Verse 14, deliver me from blood guiltiness. What is that? Murder. That's what that is. David is guilty of murder. O God of my salvation. God, you are my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are pleased not with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. And that's where David is. He is in that space of brokenness, of contriteness before the Lord. To obey is better than sacrifice. Where does that idea come from? Is it brand new right here? Is it brand new right here in David's thoughts? No. Remember Saul when he came with the booty or the spoils of of the raid, the warring that he had done that the Lord sent him on and said destroy everything. And Samuel met him and said what is this bleeding of sheep that I hear? What's going on here? We read there that The word of the Lord is this, but to obey is better than sacrifice. Saul said to Samuel, but I have obeyed the voice of the Lord and gone on this mission on which the Lord sent me and brought back Agag king of Amalek. I have utterly destroyed the Amalekites, but the people took the plunder, the sheep, the auction, the people did that. The best of the things which they could have have been utterly destroyed to to sacrifice to the Lord. That's why we brought them back. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifice as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. And then he adds this in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has rejected you from being king. David is very certain here that he does not want to repeat the sin of Saul. He knew that. Luke chapter 7, we have the story of the woman who Jesus was invited to the home of a Pharisee. And this woman came and anointed his, his feet with, with oil, this perfumed oil. And the Pharisees in the room said, he must not be a man of God, he must not be a prophet because he would know who it is that's touching him. And Jesus went on to tell them a parable about um, about a lender and two men one whom, to whom he had lended thousands and thousands of dollars and another who he lended maybe tens of dollars to. And Jesus said that the lender decided he's going to forgive their debt. Which of these two is going to love him more? And of course, the Pharisee said, well, the one who owed him thousands and thousands. And Jesus said, you're right, because the one who has been forgiven much loves much. verse 18 and 19 are here and some, some scholars believe that they were added afterwards but in this context I think we can easily say that David is saying he's also, he's, his eyes are now going out to the nation. It's no longer just about himself it's about the nation. By, the, by your favor do good to Zion. Build walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. The question is, does that, does that, is that contrary to verse 16? I think not. When people are restored, proper worship, emanates from their hearts proper offering is made he'll be pleased with the sacrifices of righteousness those are the offerings that are made by a renewed and forgiven king a renewed and forgiven people Let's pray. Lord, I thank you so much tonight for your grace. Your amazing, amazing grace. And for the fact that it's attached to who you are. And Lord, even as you have called us your very own, you also look upon us in grace and in mercy, in chesed, your covenant love, that which you cannot deny. And therefore, Lord, we thank you that we can come boldly before you, even as David did, and ask that you would indeed remove our iniquity, blot out our transgressions, and cleanse us from our sin. In Jesus' name.